Like, I probably wouldn't even try to make him. I tried once. You'd never do it. You'd never get there. Challenge accepted. Hey guys, if this is your first time listening, welcome to The Streets Will Remember. If this is not your first episode, then welcome back. I'm Justin Salhani. I am Hani Jabber. How are you today, buddy? Yeah, I'm all right, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, return listeners will hear my crisp, smooth voice due to the new mic that I have purchased. Yeah. How's the mic working for you? You feel good? I feel great. I feel professional as shit. Also, it's just great to know that my voice is superior to yours at this point in time. I noticed you don't, you don't have a drink this week. I'm a bit hungover. Oh, yeah? What did you drink last night? I had uh, quite a few wines. We went on date night. Yeah. Like glasses of wine or different wines? No, a few bottles. No, yeah, no, just, no just a few glasses of wine. <laughs> just a few glasses of, of a red, which very much aligns with, I feel, our, uh, our subject for the day because he is a man that is getting better with age, I think, just like a fine bottle of red. Um, that was a really good intro. It was, it was good, but I have to say something first. You know what? Yesterday was Juneteenth. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. If you guys don't know what Juneteenth is, Juneteenth, it is the oldest known celebration honoring the end of slavery in the U.S. And it's a belated liberation for black people in America because after the Emancipation Proclamation, it took time for that news to travel. June 19th, 1865 was the day that that news reached the last group of slaves in America. And now you see like the U.S. pushing for making this a national holiday. People took work off. They called out sick. It was really awesome. And, and the place where we used to live in Washington, D.C., there were big celebrations. I think it's amazing that that day has fallen sort of not right. I wouldn't say the middle, but sort of right at the beginning of this movement that's going on at the world at the minute, because I think it gives it another another bit of energy to continue. Um, that's probably one of my biggest concerns is that it just dies out. There have been people working on these sort of issues, you know, talking about defunding the police and all these sort of things. This has been going on since the 60s or even before. And there's, mm. been, there's been radical organizers that have been working on these issues for a long time, consistently in places like Washington, D.C. and around, around the U.S. and really around the world as well. But I think just because of this mixture of perfect storm of, you know, 2020 incidents, that now mm. these things that were so radical are starting to push into the mainstream more and more. So, yeah, I think you're right that, you know, we're in a moment where momentum is happening. However, these are things that people have been working on a long time and these people need to be respected and, and their ideas should be really engaged with instead of just pushed off right away. And I think you made a really good point just a minute ago that your wine drinking last night was a good segue into our guy here, but this might be an even better one because this has been a very particular moment. We've got protests here in Paris. I've been to a couple in the States. All 50 states have had protests after the death of George Floyd, here in France, we're talking about, uh, you know, the name that's really on everybody's lips is Adama Traore, who was also put in like a chokehold and, and uh, was killed through police brutality in this way. Yeah, so today we picked somebody because we wanted to kind of address this moment. And so I wrote something down, so I hope you'll, you'll bear with me while I read through this, that we picked 
Lilian Turham, who's the legendary French right back slash center back slash Juventus Parma Barcelona player. Most capped French player. Most capped French player of all time. Anti-racist activist, has his own anti-racist foundation. And I think this is something that hopefully we can kind of continue along as the podcast grows and continues to produce episodes. But anyways, here it is. So we picked Turam due to this moment, but I want to say that this shouldn't be about a moment. When I started Gorilla FC, which if anybody who's listening to this knows me, Gorilla FC is a creative collective that I run that was started in Washington, D.C. and continues to operate. But I decided when I started Gorilla FC that I wanted it to be built around alternative voices. Hani and myself being Arabs, uh, you know, Arab Americans and Arabs who live abroad, these are alternative voices. Through Gorilla, it would be my goal to build diverse communities and give them a platform and a voice. I've learned a lot from this. And I've had recently, I had like a very good white friend ask me, as we're talking through these issues, he says, what is enough? Like, when have I done enough? That's the question I keep asking myself. And I responded to him, you know, when it comes to anti-racism activism, when it comes to seeking justice, social justice, it's never enough. Nothing is enough. A lot of people have said lately, it's not enough to not be racist. You must be anti-racist. And this is true. But I think beyond that, no non-Black person can feel they've done enough or even fully done their part until we've, we all have justice. If you read, read a bit more. If you donate, donate a bit more. If you attend protests, try to attend more protests. You know what I mean? Try to up the level that you're doing. And if you feel like you do more than any other person you know, that's great. But it's a battle that we all have to keep fighting. And I'm not saying this to discourage people. I think that we need people to do the little that they can and we can't feel okay with the situation. As long as the situation is not good, we've not done enough. And beyond racism, we have to continue to speak out against all injustices. It's not something that we do once in a while or when it's trendy or when you know, the media moment has happened. It's something that we should try to build into our daily life. Instead of feeling guilty and donating $100, set it up so you donate $10 a month, you know, if that's what you can afford. And again, you know, set aside time to read each day or each week, you know, whatever you can do to build it into your daily life and just try to incorporate this fight for justice into your daily life. Because if we all try to do a little bit, it'll have an impact on society. And that's, well said. that's basically what I wrote. Hopefully that can act as kind of a transition into talking about Turham today, because I think we will be talking a lot about his activism as well as who he was as a player. I think so too. I'm going to add this, and I think it goes along with what you've been saying. And I've had this conversation with friends as well. If you're reading stuff that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, then you're not reading the right stuff. Because there's a lot of things incorporated into this whole scenario that if you haven't sort of gone deeper and deeper and really sort of seen those elements and you're feeling comfortable reading what you're reading, you need to get deeper in so that you can truly understand the level at which this exists for any social justice issue. I think so, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And I yeah. think I'm going to share something that somebody, a friend of mine told me once. You know, we all say things that are offensive. We all, we all mess up and it's not on purpose. And your intentions may be good, but everybody makes mistakes. And the correct way is not to say, look, you know, you're too sensitive or I didn't mean it or whatever. Listen, learn, take the criticism, say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I made a mistake and grow because it's okay to change your opinion. It's okay to grow as a person. So if you haven't listened to our intro, I hope you might go back and just give it a quick listen because one of the key values we have here 
is we say that we know we're going to fuck up. You know, we're two straight guys. I'm, we're both Arabs, but I'm white passing. I don't know, Hani, how you relate to that as well. You know, how you navigate through the world. Pretty much. What I'm saying is like, we're going to make mistakes. There's going to be perspectives that we don't have that we're unintentionally overlooking. And if you bring those to our attention, we'll do our best to engage, listen, and just do better. Agreed. All right. So Lilian Turam. What do you remember about this guy? Oh man, Turam. So Turam, sorry. So like a lot of the players that we talk about, it's like flashes of imagery. Him in a Parma shirt, him in a Juve shirt, and him in a France shirt. <laughs> Does he have Jordan-esque levels of swag in some of the greatest kits of all time? I would say so. Like, you know, very few players rock the Parma shirt the way he rocked the Parma shirt. I'll say that. Um, or a Juve shirt, to be honest. On top of that, incredible player. Like a right back, at center back. He was one of those players that, you know, would beat the shit out of the forwards or the wingers, but would do it with style and grace and not dirty. You know, he wasn't one of those aggressive players that was out there to hurt people, but he did everything with style and grace. And that was probably one of the most amazing things to watch about him. And I'll have to say, like, one of the most exciting things about watching him was when he scored those two goals for France in the semifinal. When I was watching that, you know, you, you felt all the feels. Those were his only two goals for France. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He right. just decided one day to rock up. He's like, I'm going to score two goals. I'm going to win. And then did you know, eight years later, when uh, France played Portugal in the semifinals of the World Cup, he again won man of the match. Really? I did not I mean, know that. For me, that's, that's the memory I have of Turam, is that marauding right back who was technically sound, great on the ball, calm, cool and would just plow through you. But the thing is, he did have a reputation for being fair. He was a fair player. He was aggressive. He was tough. He was hard to get by, both as a right back and as a center back. He could get up the pitch extremely well. He probably could have played in, I think he did play in midfield you know, a few times throughout his career, mm. yeah. um, but technically good enough to do so. But one of the things I remember most about him is just he always looked so fucking cool. He did. He's a cool dude. The guy's just a cool dude. He walks around with his, with his glasses. He's got two kids that play football. One of them's an absolute baller. You know, the guy's just oozing swag in every way. You already know Marcus is my guy. I know Marcus is your guy. You won't shut up about him. The thing that I most respected about Turan is like, on the, on the field is an absolute legend. But off the pitch, he's never shied away from speaking out. And the thing is, he's been criticized a lot in French society, usually by white people. Because mm. he's spoken up in controversial ways. Well, let's put it this way. Ways that were controversial at the time in the general public's view that are now becoming more mainstream. And like I mentioned earlier, the sort of activism that's been, you know, over the course of generations happening that the white mainstream would say, oh, you know, that you're asking for too much. This is too crazy. You're, you know, you're not being grateful mm. or respectful. He spoke out back in 2005. There were big time riots in France due to... Um, you know, racist statements from uh, Sarkozy, who was, I think he was interior minister at the time. He was criticizing people living in the suburbs, which are mostly immigrant heavy or people coming from places like Guadeloupe and, you know, the non, what they call the hexagon, you know, the non-territorial connected France, the, the overseas territories, as well as sure. immigrants or second generation immigrants. And they tend to be poor people of color. And Turham spoke out and supported them. So at one point there were riots and people from the suburbs were, were fed up. You know, they were rebelling against being overlooked by the politicians, you know, being crammed into these small spaces. 
it had reached a, a boiling point and they were demanding their rights. Some riots broke out and they were instantly criticized by the mainstream. And Turam got up, used his platform to say, I side with the people. And you look back today, you'll say, yeah, that's the same thing's happening in the US today. And every major athlete, even white athletes who used to say things like, I'm against kneeling during the national anthem, are coming out now to say, I've thought about it, I've reconsidered, I've, you know, again, radical positions moving central. And that was Turam 20 years ago, 15 years ago, more than that. And so that was the thing that I always respected is that he used his platform, even when it meant him being criticized, you know, maybe not getting certain endorsements. Turham is out there speaking on these issues. He started a foundation against racism. And so I remember seeing on the pitch aggressive Turham, and then I'd see a press conference where he's sitting there, you know, looking very intellectual with his, uh, with his roll necks, with his, with his glasses, looking like a philosopher and just saying, wow, a footballer can be so intelligent and so complex. And of course, he's the gold standard. Not many are like him. No, no, they're not. And that, that is his nickname, actually. It is the philosopher, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, when he scored that second goal against Croatia, he yeah. put his hand on his chin. And that's the coolest celebration I've ever seen. Because you, know, you know he didn't plan it. He doesn't score goals. You can't plan a celebration. No, 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 that's right. Goals. That's in the moment. That's in the moment. All right. So let's, let's do what we always do. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about his playing career, and which is quite an illustrious and amazing one, to be honest. So he was born in Guadeloupe to French parents and began his football career at Monaco in 1991 before moving to Parma, Juventus, and then moved to Barcelona, essentially, when Juventus, I think, got relegated to CRB in that. Calciopolis. And then moved to Barcelona, played there for a couple of years, basically towards the end of the career, and then was diagnosed with a heart condition before he retired. And ever since then, and like we've been saying, he's basically moved into being a, a figure for anti-racism and social injustice. Um, he's taken positions on Catalonia being an independent state. He's taken positions on you know, same-sex marriage. He's taken positions on anti-racism. He is basically a philosopher in that sense. And if you watch him on documentaries like Le Bleu, where you know, a lot of that conversation is around racism, it's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. You can see that he's, he speaks like an academic which is very similar to the way he played football. Yeah, so I want to give a shout out to Laurent Dubois and his book, Soccer Empire, where I learned a lot about Turam's past and how he became the man that he is today. The thing I love best about him, and I said this in the, in the intro a bit, I just like how he always stood up and used this platform to speak out for what he believed was right. I mean, he's obviously, he reads a lot of books. And like you said, his calm, his cool, his technical way, was also a way that he played. And he was incredible on the pitch. He, he made some of the best defenses in history from that back four that played for France in 98 to a very underrated 2006 back line with William Garas, uh, Willy Sagnol, and mm -hmm. Eric Abidal. And then being ahead of Buffon at Parma, partnering Cannavaro at Juventus. And even at Barcelona, you know, I mean, he was part of a pretty strong back line, even though he was kind of third or fourth choice by that point. And it was kind of the, the dying days of Ricciard part of some legendary backlines. I mean, he's been part of a France team that went through such a, I guess, race focus. And France, generally speaking, with, with the national team, race is always a conversation, right? Because you've always got a mix of white player, like white French players with black French players. Then you've got, you know, your, your North African Arabs, French players as well, you know, and, and you've got this incredible mix 
in the national team of what the country is like. And then the country, I don't want to say is divided and I don't want to create this whole dramatic element around that, but there are social divides and systematic issues within the country. And this national team brings that together. And I think it's amazing that Lilian Turam was always part of that and stood up and was, and spoke against some of the hate and some of the racist remarks that would be made about the football team that's trying to represent the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they had the famous 98 saying long black burr, which is white, black, Arab burr is, uh, I think it's Vermont yeah. for, which is like a French, you know, inverse slang for, uh, for Arab. And so it was talking about kind of, you know, playing on the Bleu Blanc Rouge, which is the French flag. Right. But yeah, I mean, look, these, these issues exist till today, you know, football can be a great tool for change, but it also can just be kind of a, a dressing. And Turam's spoken out about the French system and he's, he's taken some flack for his comments about Laurent Blanc when he was coach. Mm. And obviously there's been a lot of controversy with regard to the treatment of guys like Karim Benzema. You know, I think yeah, I mean, this is a whole another discussion about the, the intricacies of French yeah. society and then the role that racism plays. I know that, you know, there have been prominent French journalists that have come out and say things like the real issue is anti-white racism. And that's just really tiring and sad to hear. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, actually to him, one interesting thing about him, and I learned this actually from Dubois' book, is that when he was part of that 98 squad, and I think even through today, the squad tends to be a bit segregated in a sense. Like you'll see that the white players tend to hang with the white players a bit more and the black players, the black players a bit more. And that was definitely the case in the 98. And so Turam was hanging around with guys like Christian Carambeau, who's from New Caledonia, which is down your neck of the woods, honey. And mm. Carambeau learned when he moved to France that like nobody knew where he was from. And he's like, but I'm French and it's France. And he was with yeah. uh, Bernard Lama, who was the backup goalkeeper to Fabien Barthez. And, you know, they, they discussed these issues about being black in French society. And, you know, there was the whole issue that came out, the scandal a few years ago about needing to show more white players on the pitch because it's been years now, you know, okay, we have Griezmann and Giroud to an extent, but, you know, the core of that French team now is predominantly black. Every few years we have Arab stars come out as well, but for some reason or another, and I think this question needs to be asked, you know, for some reason or another, stars like Ben Arfa, like Nasri, like Benzema, that were supposed to be the next Zidane or the next star of the French generation haven't found their place in the team. And mm. of course, there's always going to be the discussion of personal responsibility and being an example and all these things. But there's also, you know, reactions to how society treats a person that shapes you, that shapes the way that, right. that you respond to things. So, but I mean, in the case of Turam, he's, he's never done anything controversial in the sense of like things that maybe Nasri has done. He's never... You know, he's never like fought with a coach. He's always been a top professional. And I think the really cool thing about him as a personality is that he's used his power to speak out against guys like Sarkozy. In 2005, Turam took the side of the protesters against the state, which is just siding against power is a great thing. I think the next year he invited a bunch of homeless immigrants to attend one of his games in France, like at one of his national team games, because that was a heavy political topic at the time. And I mean, he was doing things that was just really right there in the public eye. And when you have a platform like that, effectively what you're doing is you're saying, you need to look at this and you need to see what this is. You need to see who these people are, engage with their humanity and deal with this, you know? And so when you speak about immigrants and immigration being a problem, these are the faces that are going to come to mind. And I think that's a really powerful move. 
No, I agree. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the majority of the, the France squad now is, is black. And I think one of the best things I've ever seen was the French national team celebrating their World Cup win in the stadium when they went back to France. And you had, a, I think it was a rapper, it was Vega Dream, who was walking around with the players and they were just like singing songs and just wilding out, basically having a great time the entire stadium was with them. The players were with them. And there's like pictures of like Loris and, you know, some of the other guys in the back, just like looking awkward as shit. But like, it was incredible for them to take center stage because they had such an incredible effect on actually winning that world cup. They were unabashedly, unashamedly putting black French culture right in the face. And the thing is we, we have this conversation a lot in the States of black American culture is something that everybody consumes now from music to fashion to style. And these are things that are widely appropriated and Mm. celebrated, but then the work of black people is not the same way. You know, here it was really awesome because it wasn't expecting the black French players to put on a show for the the white mainstream. They were just Mm. being themselves and, and like unashamedly putting it forward. And, it was something that people were celebrating and non-black people were celebrating, which is awesome, yes. you know? Yeah, so, it, was, it was incredible. Talk to me a bit about Turam as a player. The man was exactly what you would want like a bombing right back to be. He was quick, technically very good and quite physical. There was, there was a clip I was watching of him going up against, against Brazil. I think it was in the 98 World Cup final. I mean, it was just so good he was just so good and you look back at the days of like Juve when he was at Juve you know he was just an unstoppable unstoppable player and he was probably what like the archetype of the type of right back you wanted back in the day I'm gonna blow up your spot a bit here people in Australia may not know this but you were once a right back let's not talk about that yeah to be fair I I built my I built my entire right back persona on Emmanuel Abue because he's my guy Fair enough. When you play in the back line and you, you have somebody who's as solid, as technical, as calm as Turam playing next to you, can you talk a bit about what that feels like? Oh, it makes the world a difference. To know that you're going to get the ball from them is the most important thing. To know that you're going to turn and you're going to see if he's a center back, the fact that he's going to win the ball for you and he's going to bring it down and he's going to give you the opportunity to attack. No right back wants to defend. I don't give a shit what anyone says. Right backs these days, they all they want to do is they want to bump forward. They want to be like Trent Alexander, Arnold. They want to be like your Cafu. They want to be like your Loren. They, you know, they want to be your Marcelos, even the left backs. I'm getting them yeah. involved too. Those weirdos. Nobody, but, nobody you know, wants to be Gary Neville. No one wants to be Gary Neville. No one wants to be like Nicky Hunt. I don't know. I'm just naming a bunch of English players now. We can't get through an episode without <laughs> Gary Neville shade. No, no. I mean, I, I do like his analysis, but yeah, we, playing style, that's a different thing. I, I personally liked his coaching at Valencia. <laughs> sorry Gary like that's what you want to do as a right back and Turam did that and he did it really well and it was really exciting to watch the thing is too is I went back and looked at this you know he was sold for 40 million euros mm. which we're talking about in early 2000 like that sort that's of nice. figure today is a decent amount of money for a player and we're talking yep. about like 20 years ago when the world record was somewhere around 60 or 80, it wasn't this 300 or whatever. Oh, shocked. Yeah. You're like, whoa, that's, that's quite high for the, for the time. One of the things that 
that I always think about with Turam is that he was the prototype of a right back that you would want in your team. I think if I'm picking a world 11, 1998 to 2002, who's your first choice right back? You've got a few names in there. You've got Zanetti, you've got Cafu, and you've got Turam. And I think I take Turam. Yep. But the thing Ooh. is, is that post... Well, maybe we'll get to that. Maybe we'll get to that a little <laughs> bit later on. Post like that time, the mid to later 2000s, he switches to a center back. And I think he was equally as good at center back. Now, the only reason I think when you talk about like all time France team, the only even reason he plays right back is because the center backs, you've got Desailly, who yeah. is maybe better than him, if not equal. And then somebody like Laurent Blanc, who honestly, I'd probably take Turam over, but Laurent Blanc was the captain of that 98 side. I think Turam had a better club career than Laurent Blanc. His national team career was arguably better because he won the same trophies and went to another World Cup final and has the most caps of all time. For me, in 2006, Fabio Cannavaro was probably the best center back in the tournament. But I think Turam was the second best at 35 years old. I think it was 35. Yeah. Here's the thing. His timing on the challenge was incredible at right back or center back. He sacrificed his body, which is a good quality when needed. I went back and watched some clips. The thing that surprised me, the, not surprised me, the thing that I was most impressed by was his anticipation in the challenge. So there were many times where he would slide to make a tackle and he just read the players that he was able to know that, okay, this guy's about to cross or he's about to take this touch. And his slide would just come in and wipe the guy out completely. Yeah. And, it, and it was really that anticipation of knowing when to commit himself. He wasn't the type of player who would get embarrassed. He knew when to commit himself to the challenge. That's why he was sold for 40 million euros. Should we take a break and come back to talking about his legacy? Yeah, let's do it. We are back and we are talking legacy. Okay, so we're going to do something a little bit new right now. Yesterday I tweeted, what is Turam's legacy? And I got some great replies, so I'm going to read some of those out. Look at you tweeting. This is a new thing. Is it new? Is it really that new? Well, I mean, we've got, now we've got like a segment. This is, this is That's fun. cool. So I got one from at Omar Firis, who said, that guy who never scored and then suddenly decided to do it twice in a World Cup semifinal. That's semifinal swag. Yeah, what a day to do it, right? <laughs> incredible, incredible day to do it. It was. <laughs> like I said earlier, the celebration is my favorite part. All right, so this one's coming from at Dr. Drew Mikhail. What's up, Drew? Good friend of mine. Drew says, one of the best center backs ever who played right back better than most. Absolute champion on the pitch and off it. Deserves the record for most caps for France. First friend of the pod, I think. Yeah, completely nailed it. I think that's definitely part of his legacy. Definitely. And I got one here from at Colby Kowitski. Oh, what's up, Colby? What up, Colby? He's a gunner as well. He says Turam's legacy is being cool as hell. The, the, I, think, I think these tweets have basically covered everything we've touched on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I see no lies from Colby. Yeah, no, I think he is cool as hell. He's a very good center back that did right back very, very well. Scoring two goals in a semifinal to propel your country into a World Cup final in which you would then win because Ronaldo was sick. Also Zidane being a baller. 
is a big part of Lilian Turan's legacy. And I think the work that he's doing off the pitch now is just going to continue to grow that. And hopefully his two kids can carry on the playing bit of the legacy as well. I think the biggest part of his legacy, you know, we can divide it into two. There's the player and then there's the man. And, you know, I think a lot of people, and you might think of somebody like Michael Jordan, for him, it's always basketball. It's always been basketball. It's always going to be basketball. But I really respect the athletes who realize that their platform is bigger. And I think, honestly, the man is more important than the player at the end of the day. And that's something that I'll say, I think, across sports. You know, as a player, you can influence people. You can inspire a lot of people. And there are, you know, many athletes that do that today. But to use your legacy to recognize your power and to mobilize it is something completely different. You know, as a player, you said it earlier, he's the prototype. He's the guy that you still want. So in Brazil, you had, you know, attacking fullbacks. In England, you maybe had more defensive-minded fullbacks. But Turam was the best of both. He could attack and defend. And I think today, those are the type of players that you want. So in a sense, you know, I don't know if it was strictly down to him because you did have other guys. You did have Zanetti. We talked about Cafu already. You know, Danny Alves has since come through. Trent Alexander-Arnold is definitely following that legacy as well. as probably the best or among the best two to three right backs in the world today. And Turam was always up there. And as Drew said, as a center back as well, one of the best to do it because of his anticipation, his physicality. I mean, he had all the tools. I agree. And we talk about archetype and he's probably the archetype as well for a way a player can use their platform for social injustices. I mean, we look at like Marcus Rashford now and you know what he's done in the UK. Not a lot of players use their, their position as a, as a platform for social injustice. I know a lot of them spend a lot of money on, you know, like helping kids that need surgeries. You know, you hear Mesut Ozil does that a lot. And that's all very well and good. And, you know, Mesut Ozil has stood up to certain political um, and has made some political statements in the past. But Lilian Turam is really sort of the archetype of what a player can do if they chose to. And I think that's going to be a big part of his legacy. And I think in the current times that we have, as more players start taking a stand like Marcus Rashford, whether Marcus Rashford knows much about Lilian Turam, I don't know. Uh, but Lilian Turam, having done that, helps give that confidence to those types of players as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a legacy of footballers being activists. I mean, the biggest example that comes to mind is Socrates from Brazil, who famously signed for Fiorentina when they asked him about playing. He's like, I'm just here to read Gramsci and the original Italian. So I'm going to say this, and I think this will really wrap up the legacy bit, because I think we, we really touched on his legacy early on in the podcast. So there's this. I think this is Turam's biggest legacy. There is a molding of Turam's skull in the Musée de l'Homme, which means the Museum of Man in France. And it's one of three. The first is a caveman. The second is the philosopher René Descartes. And the third is Turam's. And it's kind of a sort of like a silly anti-racism. We're all the same. We're all related. We're all human sort of thing. But the fact that you have three people in history and it's trying to show that, you know, three great people of French history in one place. And one of those is Turam. It is a truly awe-inspiring fact of a French civilization here. The fact that Turam's legacy, the diagram of his skull is in this museum of man just shows the effect and the impact he's had on French society, 
at large. That's a wrap. All right, then let's take a quick break and we'll be back with the Pantheon. All right, we are back to discuss the Pantheon. And today we're going to talk about best right backs of all time and where Lilian Turam sits within that. Best to us is technically superb. Um, but also was great. So that's the way we define it. If you don't like it, tweet at us, and I don't care. So, oh, right. <laughs> uh, so where do you think he sits, Justin? Well, okay, first I want to write out some of the candidates here. So I got okay. a tweet um, from Mo Harib who said Zanetti is number one. And I got another one from Anthony Saman who said Kafu is number one. Best of all time. Yes. Right backs. Yeah. I Can we cut it off? Should we cut it off at a certain year? Because I think after a while, like, we're going to get tweets about, like, someone from 1978 that I couldn't even remember. This no, because, yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to pull somebody from the 1930s, that's great. But I wasn't around to see them play. So, let, so let's say, like, the, okay. and of course, this is all relative anyways. This is based on what we've seen with our eyes. So I haven't seen anybody play in the 50s. Pele was probably great. If I talk about greatest player of all time, would Pele be in the conversation? Sure. I'll go back and watch some clips. So, yeah. So, let's – I don't okay. know. This is, that's a long way of saying I don't know and just – no, just name names. Yeah, okay. We have Zanetti. We have Cafu. Yep. I'm going to throw yep. Danny Alves in there. Definitely. So, Turam, obviously. Yeah. Who else? Uh, Zambrotta. Zambrotta was a wing back, right back. Yeah, I don't know if I would put him as best of all time, but I mean he was quality. Hey, we're throwing name, we're throwing name names. We can we can rank him in a bit. Mm. It's brainstorming session on the right backs. Trent Alexander Arnold, you got to do it. Why? He's quite good. He's great, but I mean best of all time. I don't know if I could put him up there yet. Is he better than Danny Alves yet? I'd say he'd definitely be top ten. All time. Yeah. Wow, that's spicy. I'm not saying these guys are bad. I'm not trying to throw shade to like my favorite right backs and what basically I live my college years trying to be. But, you know, he well, is better than that. So look, aside from Cafu sure. and Danny Alves and Zanetti, I am struggling yep. a little bit here. I'm trying to think of all-time great right backs. I mean, the great Manchester United teams often had Gary Neville at right back. And Gary Neville wouldn't make my top 50, probably. Well, maybe. No, because we are taking technical. So here's the thing. This is where people are going to get angry. Okay. Gary Neville was a good right back. He was a very, very good right back. He was very consistent and he was great. You know, but he's, he's got no right being anywhere near these guys. Uh, do we throw Philip Lahm in as a right back? You know, I think Lahm might be the best of all time, to be honest. Best right back of all time? Yeah. I'm going to throw out my list. Okay. I'm going to throw in Cafu as number one. I'm going to chuck in Philip Lama's number two. And then I'm going to give, then I'm going to give Turam number three. And I'm going to do what you love when I do is that he's going to share that shit with Danny Alves. And then after that, we can open it up to your Zambrotas, your Zanettis and so on. This is really tough for me. So here's the thing. Danny Alves revolutionized the right back in a sense. Disagree with you. Why? Danny Alves is, 
is Cafu version 2.0. Sort of, but he, he was nowhere near the attacking force. Like, if you remember, Dani Alves at Sevilla, before he joined Barcelona, was their attacking output. Like, he, he initially was told to stay back, and then he just kind of went with his instincts and got into the attack. And it was so effective catching people on the blind side that people started to actually make that a tactic. Yes. Before that, yeah, Cafu attacked out the back. He was technically sound. One of the reasons I'm struggling with this is because I just have this picture of Cafu in my head juggling over attackers. Yes. And it's yes. incredible. But Danny yes. Alves revolutionized the game. I mean, I'm just trying to look at their, their just because I'm obviously, I don't have in my brain encyclopedia the number of trophies they've all won. Danny Alves has definitely won more trophies than Cafu. He's won more trophies sure. than most people, but like, I mean, <laughs> like, this is the thing. I don't like this trophies debate because, again, trophies have become more top heavy in recent years. And so. But we're talking about the best of all time, right? You've got to have won trophies to be part so of the best of all time. Here's the thing on a technical level, I think Lam might be the best because he was so good that he got moved into midfield towards the end of his career. Yes. And that's probably where he should have been playing throughout his career. He could score goals, technically sound. Pep Guardiola called him the most intelligent player he's ever had. That's so, why I, I liken myself to Philip Long, because I started out right back and then have moved into, into center midfield. You live in a world of make-believe. <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I fucking quit. Um, are you, okay, so are you putting Philip Long as number one? I think I have to. On an emotion. I mean, I'm not going to, I, I, I'm not so emotionally invested in that particular argument of like Philip Plum or Cafu or Danny Alves, because I think Philip Plum was super. Here's the thing, right? Turham is my favorite right back by far. And Turham had more swag than any of these guys. Definitely more than Zanetti, who I'm pretty sure like just has fake hair on his head. Like it's a, it's like one of those fake plants. It never moves. Ooh, um, yeah, he's like a robot hair guy. Um, so I think Lam has to go first in this way, and I think Danny Alves for me has to go second. And we're basically saying Turam is definitely, definitely top three. I think Turam is three for me, and I think Kafu is four. <laughs> okay, that's that's a conversation for the Kafu episode because that's definitely going to be one. All right, so you've gone Philip Lam, Danny Alves, Lilian Turam, and Cafu. That's your four? Yeah, and you know what? I think Turam makes my top five of center backs all time, too. Okay, center back so, Pantheon would be a really fun one. We should do that soon. We should. So we're going to drop, we'll drop Turam at third. Both of all us. All right, agreed. And on that, we'll end. <laughs> If you've got anything you want to share with us or disagree with us or just send some abuse towards Justin, then tweet him at Justin Salhani and at me, this is Hani Jabber. So tweet at me as well. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform. And we'll be back next week. See you guys then. See ya. Oh, <laughs> no,